0: And thank you all for coming tonight to the Center for the Study of World Religions for our book event, uh, celebrating this wonderful book, Congress of Women, Religion, Gender, and Curiarchal Power. I should say first that this is part of a series the center has every year. It's been one of my favorite events as director of the center these years. uh, When faculty have new books, inviting faculty to present their work, a chance to celebrate our colleagues' work and to hear something of the genius that went into it, the energy, the blood, sweat, and tears, perhaps, that went into the book in order that we can understand how these uh, great books come about. Uh, Too often, I find uh, we're busy with too many things, moving around, and when somebody has a new book come out, we say, oh, great book, congratulations, and then that's the end of it. So I think this is a chance tonight to be able to, once again, enter more deeply into a colleague's work Uh, Advertising, next Monday at this time, we have Usman Khan, Professor Khan of our faculty, Beyond Timbuktu, An Intellectual History of Muslim West Africa, and then on April 18th, we'll have uh, Harvey Cox's new book, Market as God. So this is part of a series, but I cannot think of a better book to celebrate tonight than that of our distinguished colleague, Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza. Uh, Let me tell you a little about a person I'm sure is very well known to all of you already. Uh, Elizabeth has her PhD from the University of Munster in theology and intertestamental literature and New Testament. She taught at the University of Notre Dame and also here in Cambridge at the Episcopal Divinity School before coming to Harvard Divinity School and the university in 1988, where she is the Christopher Stendhal Professor of Divinity. Uh, She is truly one of our uh, most well-known, globally well-known and respected faculty. She has done pioneering work in biblical interpretation, feminist theology. Her teaching and research focus on questions of biblical and theological epistemology, hermeneutics, rhetoric, and the politics of interpretation, as well as issues of theological education, radical equality, and democracy. She is also the co-founder and co-editor of the Journal of Feminist Studies and Religion, and has been a founding co-editor of feminist issues of the uh, journal Concilium. She was elected the first woman president of the Society of Biblical Literature, and she has served on the boards of many major biblical journals and societies. In 2001, she was elected a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, It takes too long to talk about her many, many publications, but just to give you a sample, um, possibly, I don't know if she can say for herself, her most famous book, in memory of her, which has been translated into at least 13 different languages. Uh, Bread not stone, the challenge of feminist biblical interpretation. But she said, feminist practices of biblical interpretation, revelation, vision of a just world, searching the scriptures, all the way down to transforming vision, explorations in feminist theology. In recognition of her work, she's received many honorary doctorates. I count here six or seven. From universities <laughs> here and in Europe. Uh, this book tonight, uh, Congress of Women Religion, Gender, and Curiarchal Power, takes up issues of politics, struggle, resistance, social transformation, but also friendship and community. And I note inside the cover that it's dedicated to co workers who have shared with her in the work of feminist studies and religion over the past 30 years. And a remarkable fact that she, perhaps she will talk about, we can talk about in our discussion, is that there is a final section to the book, which I'll pass around in a moment, uh, bringing in, um, I count as many as eight, seven or eight of her junior colleagues uh, in the field. And I think representing the very collegial nature of her work, wanting to hear from younger scholars, the new generation, um, as she proposes her own themes. So I think it's a book that also models teaching and models the kinds of conversation to which she points us. So our plan tonight will be to give Elizabeth the first chance to talk about the book, how she came to write it, any struggles along the way, what she hoped to gain out of it, how it came to have the structure it has, and then we'll have three discussants and I'll introduce them at that point. And then the final part of our evening together will be conversation with all of you. So let us begin our session tonight by welcoming Elizabeth schusler
1: Thank you. <coughs> Can you hear me? Yeah. I'm one of these people who, according to Kungar, couldn't be ordained <coughs> because their voices won't carry for preaching, so. <laughs> I'm happy that we open uh, this se- uh, semester's faculty book discussions with a feminist work and want to thank Professor Clooney the Director of the Center, for uh, making uh, these discussions possible. I want especially to express my gratitude for his warm welcome today and for hosting this event. <coughs> I also want to recognize and thank the CSWR staff, Ariella Ruth Goldberg, and Dori Lee Goering for organizing, publicizing, and preparing this discussion. I greatly appreciated that despite of inordinate time pressures, my colleagues, Dean Melanie Johnson de Boffre and Professor Nancy pineda Madrid accepted the invitations to participate in this discussion of Congress of Women. I especially want to thank Ms. Kelsey Mm Morrison-Atkins who, as my research assistant, has worked tirelessly not only on the book from the beginning to, I almost said to the end. (laughs) 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 From the beginning to the first proofreading, but also has helped to prepare this event. I'm glad to report that her dissertation proposal on the rhetoric of dress and uh, adorning uh, <clears throat> the, uh, adornment in the Conception of I- Identity in Early Christianity was today approved by the Dr. Wow. committee Congratulations. Wow. <clears throat> <clears throat> Congress of Women has its roots in the invitation to give the Distinguished Cathedral McKay Lectures at the Universidad Biblica Latinoamericana in Costa Rica in 2012. These were published as Poder, Diversidad y Religion, uh, Power, Diversita- uh, Diversity and Religion in 2013. Because the lectures were well received, I decided to edit and revise them for publication in English. When critically working with students through the chapters of um, my man- uh, of the manuscript of my book, Democratizing Biblical Studies, I had a very positive experience, and Tyler is still here from this seminar. I had a very um, a positive experience. Uh, hence, I decided to adopt the same collaborative teaching process in my fall 2014 graduate seminar on feminist theories and theologies, and plans the syllabus and readings for the seminar around the Costa Rica lectures. Through so the lively seminar discussions, the topic and focus of the book was clarified to be on power, and not just on gender. And diversity was articulated in terms of collaboration imagined as Congress of Women. Since at the same time, Feminist Studies and Religion decided to initiate a book series, I volunteered the manuscript as test case for the first volume in the series, and also to signal a theoretical vision or branding, to use Trump's expression, (laughs) for this new book series. Congress of Women was developed in the uh, context of neoliberal American democracy, which increasingly displays um, uh, anti-democratic elements that are often sanctioned by Christian religious language. Poverty engendered by neoliberalism, destabilization of whole nations through military conflict, slave trade around the globe, fear of terrorism, and the ever-expanding war on women constitute, therefore, the horizon of feminist thought and struggles and of this book. In her book blurb for Congress of Women, Professor Maria Pilar Aquino has prospectively recognized this context and aim of the book. I quote her. Amidst neoliberal globalization, Schuster-Fiorenza declares that the social force of religions must be devalued, devoted to promoting hope, justice, and well-being for all. She sees religion as an ethical political space for imagination and change, and rightly advocates for closer collaboration between feminist theology, theory, and movements. More expansively, Congress of Women offers an exciting vision of feminism, working in greater solidarity with social justice activists, religious leaders, and community builders to transform global cultural powers. To bring about change, uh, feminist transnational networks and movements have developed resonant, theoretical, practical frames that inspire and motivate the struggles of women cross-culturally and around the globe. Since such transnational feminist networks have been successful because their politics is a goal directed rather than identity-based. Access of the process of alternative globalization from below raises um, the question why uh, feminist theology and studies in religion have remained stuck in the identity politics of the 80s and 90s, replicating again and again the north, south, or first world, third world rhetoric rather than creating global transnational, transracial, transgender, or transreligion networks for articulating common goals. If neoliberal globalization engenders fundamentalist and anti womens movements around the globe, then feminist theology and studies in religion have um, to move beyond discussing identity politics to elaborating religiously and theologically transnational feminist theoretical practical frames which inspire and motivate women cross-culturally. We need to develop theoretical frames and organizational strategies that will focus on these global issues of women's rights and justice and articulate them not only in theoretical terms but also explore them in terms of sacred scriptures, religious traditions, and liberationist imaginaries. This would require a much closer collaboration between scholars and ministers, academic intellectuals, religious leaders, and community builders. An examination of neoliberal capitalist globalization thus calls for a critical feminist analysis and for engendering global feminist trans movements for conscientization in religions. It calls for a reorientation of feminist theology and studies in religion towards their roots in the global women's liberation movements. Feminist studies in religion need to test and evaluate postmodern feminist theories, and mainstream scholarship in terms of the struggles against the devastating consequences of capitalist globalization and in support of global feminist movements that struggle for the well-being of everyone, without exception, as well as for the flourishing of the planet. I recognize the important tools which postmodern deconstruction has given us for interrogating the forms of knowledge that reproduce stereotyping forms of power and pervasive ideologies of curiarchal domination in language which colonizes (coughs) the imagination. However, I disagree with the totalizing deployment of this approach which tells us that there is no way to escape either the self-referential system of language or the powers of exploitation when we attempt to produce knowledge that is transformative. Hence, we need not only to engage in deconstruction and critical struggle, we also need to engage in practices of revisioning and articulating methods and practices of uh, and uh, of the imagination, de imperializing scripture and theology, and decolonizing of the divine. Historically, it is the language of democracy, equality, and justice, articulated in different cultural and religious tongues, that provides an alternative imaginary space to imperialism. Although democracy has uh, different shades of meaning in different historical contexts that are not always liberating, I agree with Adriana Hernandez that democracy through the times has been and still is the discourse that sets the terms for critique of current affairs and institutional orders and creates the basis for their change. Articulating the women's movement as the ecclesia or congress of women that is responsible for the cosmopolis of women, I suggest, offers a political language and space for feminist imagination to develop public religious discourses of justice, difference, freedom, equity equality, and solidarity. The challenge then today uh, seems today. Uh, whether we can, in and through the deconstruction of curial inscriptions, articulate an alternative religious imagination different from that of the imperial imaginary of Christianity. Since religious fundamentalism draw on the curial language of empire, inscribed in Christian scriptures and traditions, Emancipatory studies in religion, I argue, must also draw on scriptures and traditions for reconstructing democratic egalitarian visions, which are also inscribed in religious scriptures and traditions. This is not just a task for feminist and liberationist scholars in religion, but also for all those seeking transformative practices of imagination and vision that are able, to articulate radical democratic visions inspired by the sacred scriptures and traditions of the world religions. Congress of Women seeks to make this argument in four chapters. The first chapter discusses power as power as well as uh, how the scriptural power of the word still impacts the life of women around the globe. The second chapter explores the question of diversity in critical discussion with the new feminism, the feminine genius or emphasized femininity, concepts constructed in terms of hypermasculinity and courierial power. This chapter critically analyzes two Christian essentialist gender identity constructs of woman and the feminine and the ways in which they function to co-opt and exclude women at one and the same time. (coughs) The third chapter seeks for a theoretical and spiritual Christian vision that enable us to question, resist, and change the relations of global domination. As one such utopian imaginary, I propose the notion of the ecclesia, or citizen assembly of women, newly conceptualized, because it sounded for many too Christian. As um, I, I newly conceptualized it, as a part of the radical democratic congress uh, of the cosmopolis. The, uh, of God's different world. God's different cosmopolis is envisioned here as the alternative imaginative space to the global village created by capitalist neoliberalism. In sum, um, he, um, the argument of all three chapters foregrounds the analytic concept of Kyriarchy and its alternative, the cosmopolis for analyzing and re-envisioning the kind of power legitimated by religions and sacred scriptures. The fourth and final chapter is not a conclusion, but a beginning. A dialogue of young feminist thinkers who will define future feminist theologies or studies in religion, and hopefully will enact feminist transformations in different spaces and locations. This roundtable metalogue situates the book's argument in conversation with emergent feminist theoretical voices. This uh, last chapter moves from feminist theory in an authorial mode to dialogical experiences and practices expressed by different voices and perspectives. I hope that the conversation we have started in this feminist theories and theology seminar will be continued, not only by readers of Congress of Women, but also by the contributors to the new FSR book series on feminist studies in religion that inaugurates. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. So we have the, the procedure of these book events is to kind of open the book by discussants, two or three people who thought about it, read about the issues. None of them are responsible to give kind of a book review, but rather to raise issues of interest and importance. So I'll introduce them briefly, turn it over to them, and then Elizabeth will have a chance to respond to them if she wishes. So Kelsey Morrison-Atkins is a third year THD student in New Testament and early Christian studies. Her primary focus of research, as you already heard, is Dress and Adornment in Antiquity, and as it has here, recently submitted a prospectus for a dissertation, which was approved today, on the rhetoric of dress and adornment and the construction of identity in early Christianity. She also, as as you see with the book going around, she's a contributor to the book, has a section in the book called Telling Histories, Feminist Theory and Theology as a Practice of History Writing and World Making. So you can check that out as the book comes around. Our second respondent will be uh, Nancy Pineda Madrid from Boston College. We didn't quite, o- I guess we didn't overlap there, but I was there when you came and I left campus, but I consider you like a neighbor. So, so welcome, <laughs> welcome from Boston College. Nancy Pineda Madrid is Associate Professor of Theology and Latino-Latina Ministry at Boston College. Her, uh, her, she holds a PhD in Systematic and Philosophical Theology from the Graduate Theological Union and her MDiv is from Seattle University. She works at the intersection of systematic theology and practical theology, and her specializations include Latino-Latina theology, feminist reconstructions of redemption, salvation, and United States North American pragmatism and religious thought. Among some of her recent publications is the book, Suffering and Salvation in Cuidad Juarez. Ciudad Juarez. They didn't pay me for my Spanish. Um, 2011, and then she co-edited a book, Hope, Promise, Possibility, and Fulfillment. And recent articles include Feminicide and the Reinvention of Religious Practices and Latina Theology in the Liberation Theologies in the United States volume. And our third respondent, Melanie Johnson de Buffer, I've said I could pronounce it like I'm from New Jersey since I'm from, I'm from Staten Island, so I can do that. Uh, Melanie comes to us uh, from Drew University, where she is Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity and Associate Dean of the uh, Theological School, and uh, she also is in the Graduate Division of Religion. She holds her Master's Degree and Doctorate here at Harvard Divinity School, welcome back, and is ordained in the American Baptist Churches. Her scholarship focuses on the traditions of earliest Christianities, the historical Jesus, the Q source Paulian communities in the context of the Roman Empire uh, with interest in ethics and the practices of historiography and contemporary reconstructions of Christian origins. She is currently working on a book that draws on theories of space and place, post-colonial and feminist thought, and material culture to think about how Paul's letters read spatially map out a complex and contested emergence of the material and discursive space Christian that was Christian in the early centuries. Her books include Mary Magdalene Understood and Jesus Among Her Children, Q Eschatology and the Construction of Christian Origins. She is the co-editor of the Journal of Feminist Studies and Religion, and she also co-edited uh, Walk in the Ways of Wisdom, which was a festschrift for Lisbeth Schussler-Fiorenza in 2003. So we have three wonderful discussions for the book, and I believe we begin with the bold, youngest person, Kelsey. (laughs) Welcome, Kelsey.
2: Thanks. Uh, Before I begin, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge what an honor it is to share the stage, so to speak, with a couple of my uh, intellectual heroines, Professor Nancy Pineda-Madrid and Dean Melanie Johnson de Balfrey. For this honor and for this important volume, I want to thank my esteemed advisor, Professor Elizabeth Schusler fiorenza I'm delighted to be here to share a bit of my experience as a student contributor to Congress of Women, so without further ado. Preparing for my remarks today, I reread this volume as if with new eyes. This manuscript and the feminist theory and theology seminar itself emerged in a very, very different political moment. Even as the book was ushered into the final stages of publication just a few short months ago, I could not have imagined how eerily prophetic the contents of this volume would be. In Congress of Women, Schussler-Fiorenza maps the religious discourses shaping neoliberal globalization and argues for the critical importance of alliances between feminist theory, theology, and grassroots movements for change. This book also lays out the ties between neoliberalism and conservative religious movements, promoting an essentialized notion of femininity that bolsters white supremacy and pits middle and upper class white women over against women of color, lower class women, and majority world women. schusler fiorenza writes, quote, The anti-feminist religious right seeks to strengthen curiarchal capitalist power by resorting to essentialist scriptural or philosophical arguments and by organizing upper and middle class white women against poor women's exercise of their citizen rights in society and in church." Reading this post-election, I can't help but think to the shocking 53% of white women who voted for Trump and the relative lack of attention paid by analysts to the intermingling of religious discourses with racism, colonialism, and capitalism that led so many white women to cast their votes for an unabashedly misogynist candidate. ESF notes, importantly, that a strictly gender-based analysis is unable to account for the structures of power that led to this outcome in which the majority of white women voted to perpetuate the oppression of the doubly and triply marginalized. While I suspect that many of us in this room might aspire to have our books described as prophetic, in the current political moment of rife misogyny and xenophobia, such an inscription might be considered rather cold comfort. Nevertheless, Schussler-Fiorenza's aim in Congress of Women is not merely diagnostic or even solely deconstructive. Rather, she consistently underscores that feminist theory and theology must be both deconstructive and reconstructive, in order to bring about critical feminist solidarity in context of very real social, political, and religious struggles around the globe. She writes, quote, a critical feminist political theology of liberation, therefore, has not only the deconstructive task of denaturalizing hegemonic, hierarchical gender relations, but also the reconstructive task of envisioning a different world, society, and religious community free from domination. Such a feminist world construction that seeks to articulate alternatives to curiarchal relations of domination has been partially realized in history in and through emancipatory radical democratic movements." Quote. My remarks today focus primarily on the constructive work of building alternative communal spaces, imagining the concluding student roundtable, MetaLog, and the Feminist Theory and Theology Seminar as an instantiation in miniature of Schuster fiorenzas notion of the Ecclesia Cosmopolis of women. Speaking from my experience as a student contributor to Congress of Women, I want to suggest that the concluding roundtable meta-log represents a microcosmopolis of women, if you'll pardon the confounding of Greek suffixes, I am a student of the New Testament after all, in which our voices and critical insights intermingle the religious, the social, and the political. Seminar as site of resistance, education as activism, publication as feminist praxis. What a set of propositions. In chapter three, toward the Ecclesia and Cos- Cosmopolis of Women, Schusler fiorenza describes the Ecclesia Cosmopolis of Women as a radical feminist political imaginary invested in a transnational perspective on issues of justice and attention to the intertwining of religious and social issues in the creation or reshaping of institutions to allow diversely situated individuals to debate with and learn from one another. Schusler fiorenza writes, quote, this feminist space is one where the so-called secular and religious women's movements can be conceptualized not as opposites or never meeting parallels, but as a radical democratic, spiritual decolonizing space and feminist public, as a congress of diverse women's groups and feminist movements, working together for change and transformation in both society and religion." So let me begin by providing some background on the Feminist Theory and Theology Seminar, as well as the process of formulating and publishing the student contributions. The seminar took place in the fall of 2014 and brought together nine students at various stages, of their programs from HDS, BU, and BC. In the first half of the semester, we read and discussed this manuscript together, and in the second half of the semester, we each had the opportunity to share our research projects and to get feedback from one another on how to develop our ideas further. In his roundtable reflection, Riker Benavides, currently a PhD student in biomedical engineering at Johns Hopkins, if that gives you any sense of the breadth of interest represented in this small seminar, describes his experience of our conversations thus, quote, throughout the semester I learned that the bringing together of diverse and even contradictory viewpoints is precisely what is necessary to destabilize the curiarchal regime, unquote. Rereading Riker's reflections as well as my own, I am reminded that our conversations, while sometimes tense, especially for a patented midwesterner, were always respectful and productive and took my own thinking in unanticipated directions. Such a space for collective thinking and productive tension exemplifies to my mind the Ecclesia of Women as quote, a friendship community of struggle that signifies not only fullness of being, all encompassing inclusivity, but also dynamic multiplicity and the convergence of many voices, end quote. What was striking to me as a participant in the seminar and what is striking to me now as I reread the metalogue is the extent to which our research projects and practical investments are not pursued in isolation, but even in print, it is possible to trace the conversations and debates with one another that informed and shaped our work. To name just one example, Ashley Unruh notes how her project, which focused on uh, how the analytical lens of curiarchy can push back on the oversimplification of sex work in legal and public discourse, was shaped by Melanie Stanford's proposal for a practical curriculum in feminist theology. In keeping with the aim of the cosmopolis of women to create space for feminist conversation and debate, The Roundtable Metalogue therefore functions not as a conclusion to Congress of Women, but as an extension to the theoretical work of the volume. Each of the contributions reflects upon the experiences of the seminar itself and records how we applied the key insights of the the book to our own research projects, refracting feminist theory and theology through our own political, social, and religious investments. In the last few minutes then, I would like to draw attention to how the individual student contributions to the Roundtable Metalogue function on two levels both responding to the larger claims of the book itself and providing a kind of model for how this volume might be engaged by future communities of readers. While I can't possibly do justice to the moving reflections and critical insights of my colleagues, I will note here some of the questions and visions that their essays raise for me in both engaging and extending the theoretical work of the book. First, Heather McCletchy-Leader opens the metalogue by reflecting upon how this book and the seminar helped to quote, define her feminist, Her contribution asks us as readers to consider how to develop and sustain the multiplicity and diversity of feminism in the face of widespread stereotyping of feminism as man-hating, as a man-hating antagonistic monolith. I can't even get it out. (laughs) Uh, On the other side of this, Heather's response also implicitly raises important questions about the commodification of feminism as a brand that Bell Hooks and Andy Zeisler have recently pushed back against. As an aside, and maybe also a confession, one of these conversations that pushed my thinking was on the implications of holding up Beyonce and Taylor Swift as feminist icons. Monica Ray, in her contribution, highlights the ways in which her own feminist commitments were shaped by encounters with the conservative Christian gospel of femininity that promoted full-time, devoted motherhood as the highest good, and how these discourses cast her Peruvian mother working two jobs to make ends meet for her children as a failure. Monica's response thus narrates firsthand the ways in which religious discourses are shot through with structures of power based on race, class, and status. Building upon Schussler-Fiorenza's understanding of the importance of feminist consciousness raising within religious communities, Melody Stanford considers how we might develop practical frameworks for education, educating parishioners on the injustices enacted in the name of the free market. She focuses in particular on the devastating environmental and human rights violations of global neoliberalism in which water is seen as a commodity and not as a basic human right. Ashley Enru likewise seeks to take the analytical frameworks provided in Congress of women to develop a transformative vision of justice for sex workers and advocates. Elise Raby and Riker Benavides bring theory and theology to questions of embodiment, asking how an intersectional lens applied to Christology and incarnation Provides an alternative to conflations of Christ with masculinity, so often used to limit women's religious authority and to uphold existing structures of power. Yeji Kim considers the complexity of cross cultural theorizing as she applies a curiarchal analytic to her community, to women's participation and leadership in her own community of faith, First Korean Church in Cambridge. Finally, in my concluding reflection, I ask about the implications of history both in how we might engage in a justice-oriented retelling of the past for the present in my own discipline and in considering the narratives that we use to tell the history of feminism. How might this metalogue be conceived as a kind of feminist storytelling? How do each of these contributions individually and together constitute a kind of narrative that enfolds past and present feminist work? It's perhaps interesting to think about the roundtable metalogue as a kind of example encoded within the text for how future communities of re- readers might engage with Congress of Women. What would it mean to engage with feminist theory in community rather than in scholarly isolation? What would be the effect of starting with the roundtable table and then moving to the main text of Congress of Women? As this book shifts conventions of scholarly publishing, does it also shift conventions of scholarly reading? If so, what are the implications of this for democratic modes of feminist reading, thinking, of acting up or acting out? Building and reframing existing institutions to provide space for the flourishing of feminist work is central to the alternative imaginary of the ecclesia Cosmopolis of women. Creating spaces for students to publish their insights in which the scholar-author is one among a multiplicity of voices is one important model of this cross-generational feminist activism, and I am very grateful to have been a part of such a dynamic and invested community. My hope is that this metalogue might be seen by the reader as a model for the ties that might and should be formed between feminists and religion and social movements for change that are critical in all political contexts, but perhaps especially and urgently in this one.
3: Well, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, it's always a joy to be back. I think I met you, Elizabeth, for the first time actually in this room about 11 years ago. I remember exactly uh, when we met, and it was at a, at a lecture like this one, so it's a, it's a joy and a great honor to be here. And um, I'm very grateful to you for, en- for encouraging me and inviting me to provide a response, um, so thank you. And. Um, Thank you for calling our attention to the global economic cosmopolitanism also known as neoliberal capitalism and the ways it demands that we reimagine our theological project if we are to offer any credible response to what's going on in the world today. Indeed today we need to become critically aware that we write theology in the belly of the beast in the time of Trump. As you noted, we live in a time of war against woman, now more than ever. I title my response today, Traversing Along Theological Borderlands. I do so because I spent the first 25 years of my life along the US-Mexican border. And your book took me very quickly back to that place. I was raised in El Paso, Texas, and often spent time in Ciudad Juarez. I chose traversing along because I believe you are inviting us to travel across and back and across again, across theological borderlands. You describe your task as follows, and I quote, In my view, feminist emancipatory theories and theologies have a double task, On the one hand, they have to name, question, transcend, and theorize relations of domination and dehumanization. On the other, they should create spaces and opportunities for very different women to move across religious and social boundaries in order to encounter one another, to join in solidarity with one another, and to harness their power of change social and religious liberation movements thus empower critical feminist theories and theologies, close quote. So I'm gonna make a couple of points. First, I wanna express my appreciation, Elizabeth, that you are inviting us to think at the intersection of the theological and the political, and to do so in a transnational key. It is impossible to overstate the importance of this um, today. I was thinking as I was writing this, it's even more important today than it was when you were writing this book, what you have done. Uh, It's hard to overstate its importance. Shortly I will turn to one example of what this means on the southern border. While your work has always foregrounded the political, in this book the political is framed a bit differently. Here you turn our attention to the intersection of feminist critical theology and religion and critical political theory. So for me, that's a, while they've always, all all your work has been political, there's a, there's a a reframing here that I find very um, enlightening. And particularly the fact that it's being done in terms of a transnational context. This is echoed in your constant traversing at the intersection of the Ecclesia of Women and a Cosmopolis of Women, calling us to consider what it means to be citizens of the world. I turn to the US-Mexican border as an example of where your work directs our attention. As we know, the emergence and escalation of violence against women does not erupt without cause. Economic power in this region which is the result of neoliberal economics, has brought about in Mexico the disarticulation of the state and the disarticulation of justice. The power brokers of neoliberal economics have reorganized political power so that it carries a minimal risk to global market economics. Organized crime has taken advantage of the globalized economic world further advancing the denationalization of Mexico and forging a transnational unity between Mexico and the United States. It quite effectively manipulates political power on both sides of the border so as to advance its own particular interests in a globalized world economy. This reorganization has increasingly generated the disposability of labor, particularly female labor. Women have become viewed socially as low-valued individuals, a term coined by uh, Saskia Sassen, or as Ciudadanas X of a denationalized region. As, and, and this is a term uh, Ciudadanas X. that has been used by Alicia Schmidt Camacho. This term, Ciudadanas X, recognizes the absence of state and national power to act on behalf of civil society. The crucifixion of women in this region, in the border region, not only expresses itself bodily, but also is justified through the dissemination of the myth of mujeres desechables, the ways in which global capitalism treats and disposes of women as natural and inevitable. Myth is, of course, a foundational story or premise that is used to rationalize and justify making a situation appear as given and as natural. To identify and name this operative myth of disposability is to take a first step towards dismantling of this mindset. According to Melissa Wright, and I quote, the myth of the disposable third uh, world woman revolves around the trials and tribulations of its central protagonist. A young woman from a third world locale, who, through the passage of time, comes to personify the meaning of human disposability, someone who eventually evolves into a state of worthlessness. (coughs) The myth explains that this waiting process occurs within the factories that employ her as she, within a relatively short period of time and at a young age, loses the physical and mental faculties for which she was initially employed until she is worth no more than the cost of her dismissal and substitute. In other words, over time, this woman turns into a form of industrial waste, at which point she is discarded and replaced. The myth explains this unlucky fate as a factual outcome of natural and cultural processes that are immune to external tampering. In short, there is nothing, says the myth, that can be done to save its unfortunate protagonist from her sad destiny. Close quote. One of the paradoxes present is that just as the third world woman is transformed to personify human disposability, a commodity to be used and discarded, she is simultaneously producing products of value in the market. Um, and so I'm, I'm raising this because I think Elizabeth's work for me draws my attention directly to this kind of thinking. Um, and drawing again on right, she, knows, she names this disposability myth in relation to global factory work. In this case, the Maquilas of Ciudad Juarez. It applies as well to women who suffer a slavery unto death in sexual trafficking and to women who are victims of feminicide, the assassination, mass assassination of women, which is a growing phenomenon certainly in Juarez as well as other parts of the globe. Um, who are victims of feminicide of whose death the state overlooks. This myth, like many such narratives, is advanced to obscure the political relationships that have formed and to foreclose any discussions of politics, attempting to make the situation of the third world woman appear to be natural. To make this situation appear to be preordained, fait accompli, places it beyond any political purview and critique. Arguably, the condition of dispossession, in Judith Butler's thinking, rightly names what is transpiring for third world women. It is precisely what happens when populations lose their land, their citizenship, their means of livelihood, and become subject to military and legal violence. In theological language, it is the making of a crucified people at the hands of the state beholden to economic power brokers. And you're, I think, calling our attention exactly to this kind of phenomena. Your book calls for a much closer collaboration between scholars and ministers, or religious leaders and community uh, builders. Um, And there are crosses, as many of us know, painted a bold pink color uh, in Ciudad Juarez, and they're used to protest the violence there. So how are we to interpret the use of the cross in these public practices of protest? Might this use of the cross call us to consider anew the cross in relation to the sacredness of female bodies? And accordingly, might this use of the cross call into question interpretations which serve to subordinate women, particularly poor women of color? Through the pink crosses protesting violence against women, particularly the violence of feminicide, we are invited to remake our humanity, to see the assassination of women for what it is, and to join the effort to bring the crucified down from the, crossed, the cross. You posit that feminist liberation theologies and studies in religion have made several contributions, but have neglected to create educational community spaces for feminist theological knowledge production or have exchanges on the grassroot or global levels that could address this contradiction in women's identity formation. Feminists in religion, therefore, have to develop their work not just in terms of knowledge production, but also as a means of communal conscientization. A close quote. Throughout your work, you underscore the import of studies of symbolic universes and religious practices. And so I was highlighting the use of these pink crosses because uh, one question that I have for our conversation is how how might attention to the non-rational dimension of our knowing play a more viable role in the transformation of curiarchal societies and religion? And I ask this because in many ways, we often function at a, uh, a, we're informed by a symbolic level that we're not always critically aware of. And um, and, and so to get at and um, engage with social imaginaries at a non-rational level, it's not to say that they're irrational, but the, the non-rational level I think is utterly important for dismantling um, the kind of oppression that we're talking about. Um, so my second point, I appreciate that In this book, you call us to forge new emancipatory spaces. You call on us to, and I quote, create spaces and opportunities for the very different women to move across religious and social boundaries in order to encounter one another, to join in solidarity with one another, and to harness their power of change, close quote. You speak of Ecclesia of Women and the Cosmopolis of Women using varied meanings that these terms connote. So Ecclesia connoting both the democratic assembly of full citizens and the religious community. Cosmopolis, an invitation for us to consider what it means to be citizens of the world. These terms have both a literal and, uh, and material uh, meanings as well as metaphorical and ideal meanings. The imaginative work you call for, I hold, cannot be prophetic feminist critical work if we do not journey to the borderlands. In my usage, the borderlands carries both material and metaphorical meanings. Here I'm informed by your work, as well as the work of Walter Mignolo. His book, Local Histories and Global Designs, Coloniality, Subaltern Knowledges, and Border Thinking. In this text, he argues that colonial modernities or subaltern modernities that is, a period expanding from the late 15th century to the current stage of globalization, have built a frame and a conception of knowledge based on the distinction between epistemology and hermeneutics, and by so doing, have subalternized other kinds of knowledge. That long process of subalternization of knowledge is being radically transformed by new forms of knowledge in which what has been subalternized and considered interesting only as object of study becomes articulated as new loci of annunciation. Enunci- close quote. And so what he's arguing here is for a border gnosis, a border gnosis. The border is the place to transcend binaries, to create something new. It can be an emancipatory space created by a retelling of religious stories in a new key. For example, your telling of the empty tomb story. Um, This emancipatory space discloses the injustice furthered by those in power. The border continually fosters a space of resistance and non-acceptance of the established unjust order. It creates a subversion of the fatality of dependency. Along the border, meaning is no longer confined to the given facts of the situation. Meaning emerges from a larger context from both sides of the border. The cosmopolis of women, I contend, invites transformation because it it is necessarily located in the terrain of the borderlands. This is the space to unleash political and theological imaginaries. It is a wilderness where visions emerge, and yet another meaning of borderland, which I want to suggest. Well, not amply explored theologically, Latin American literature is known for its magical realism. And here I'm thinking of Isabel Allende's House of Spirit, for example, and there are many, many, many examples. and magical realism also appears in other places. For example, in Chicano studies, if you look at Aztlán and the history of Atslan and what Aztlán means, it's the same kind of an idea. A space and a land where the spiritual and the material um, come together. So this magical uh, realism takes us to the nexus between the real and the beyond. Gloria Anzaldúa in her Borderlands La Frontera writes, And I quote, the US Mexican border is una herida abierta, where the third world grates against the first and bleeds. And before a scab forms, it hemorrhages again, the lifeblood of two worlds merging to form a third country, a border country. Borders are set up to define the places that are safe and unsafe, to distinguish us from them. A border is a dividing line, a narrow strip along a steep edge. A borderland is a vague and undetermined place created by the emotional residue of an unnatural boundary. It is in, constant, it is in a constant state of transition. The prohibited and forbidden are its inhabitants." Close quote. And I think that's where you're taking us is precisely there, to these kinds of places. You have invited us to the borderlands, calling for a careful, and I quote, analyzing and reframing the workings of power in the religious discourses of the past and those of the present, as well as by constructing an imaginative space for articulating an alternate, alternative, radical, egalitarian, discursive imagination, close quote. You state that we need to take account of both the particular articulations, geographical and identity centered, as well as uh, commonality in neoliberal empire that shapes our present cultural, political, religious situations around the globe. I read this as an invitation to the borderlands, both theologically and politically. So my question is here is how might attention to the borderlands serve as a hermeneutical key for opening up imaginative space further. Thank you for encouraging us to traverse along the theological borderlands. Thank you.
4: Good evening. I'd like to thank Professor Clooney and Elizabeth Joseph Fiorenza for this invitation to be part of this great event. The arrival of this book is a thing to celebrate, and having been one of the co-editors of the series, uh, it's, I feel it very uh, personally. And so I'm, I'm very happy to celebrate the arrival of this book as well as to be in this space here at HDS, where more years ago than I would like to admit, uh, I was welcomed as an incoming MDiv student by Dean Ron Themen, And he said to a whole bunch of nervous students who were worried if they were the admissions mistake, that Harvard doesn't make mistakes. (laughs) I also want to thank Elizabeth Renza for this incisive little book um, and for our many years of scholarly collaboration and friendship. It means a great deal to me to be here today. So I want to talk about Congress of Women um, here and I'm glad I went third because I'd like to open it up for you to contemplate this idea of spaces of possibilities because I think that that's one of the most crucial um, aspects of, of this rich book that resonated with me from three particular places. First, in terms of the political and theological landscape that we find ourselves in today, as opposed to when this book first began its journey to publication well before the Donald, so landscape. Second, from the perspective of my faculty and now relatively new role as academic dean at the theological school, a theological school of drew university one affiliated with a formerly mainline now sidelined denomination protestant denomination in the united states finally from the angle of my role as one of the editors of the new series of fsr books which can now boast of course this book as its inaugural publication all in all i like to open up this conversation to talk about this concept of really, as I said, utopian or spaces of possibilities from this leading scholar of feminist studies in religion and theology. My goal is to contribute really to our ongoing work to struggle together for a more just world. The themes in Congress should be familiar to those of us who know Elizabeth's work. Kyriarchy, Ecclesia of Women, and a critical feminist theoretical framework for both analysis of structures of domination and the cultivation of emancipatory discourses, practices, and ways of knowing and living. These things remain at the center of Elizabeth's work. And here, particular attention is paid to the problem of certain divides, such as the ways that feminist political work remains cleft by false distinctions. False distinctions between the secular and the religious. And as well as between the religious and the political. She does not seek to merely acknowledge the presence of the religious in political spheres, and that is a crucial insight. She rather seeks to claim religion and theology as a space for politics, thoroughly as a space for politics both repressive politics and emancipatory politics. And here she does not just mean the political, as in power struggles, right? But she actually means the space of democratics, that is democratic political life, of citizenship, of the forming of social relationships, and the negotiation of living together in the world, in societies, in geographies, in places. Thus the imaginary of the Congress of women does not actually replace the ecclesia of women simply as a suitable translation of the concept into secular or political spaces. It rather refracts the feminist theopolitical imaginary of ecclesia of women to bring the political into sharper focus. Um, but without evacuating theology and religion as a space for feminist politics, for feminist citizenship, and for feminist democratics, or democratics more broadly, which form, as she says, the horizon of feminist struggles in both religion and society at large. And as you've heard from my colleagues from everywhere from the classroom, right, to the globe, right, to the transnational globe and everywhere in between. What is so challenging and compelling about this move in the current landscape, for me, is the ways that Congress, as a site of politics, has today become a grotesque carnival of incompetent gamesmanship and political ideological posturing. This raises questions for me that I'm not posing to Elizabeth, but that I'm moving from Elizabeth to you. And that is it raises questions for me about the idea of both Congress in the U.S. and Congress as a political imaginary as a space for citizen decision making. Where are the spaces of citizenship today that we might, from which we may imagine alternatives? What happens to our imagining of alternative or contrapuntal spaces if the base concepts, even the base places, become so terribly unconvincing or credible as a space for democracy? What kinds of liberation, emancipation, and alternative places of freedom are we seeking and theorizing when the Freedom Caucus, is hell-bent on obliterating any collective forms of civic bond beyond the free movement of commerce and the performance of politics as spectacles of allegiance. How do we constitute alternative spaces of full rights, freedom, decision-making, when the dominant spaces of citizenship, law, and rights seem to be collapsing from within? And all of these using co-opted rhetoric of freedom and self-determination free to be very rich and very poor free to be well and sick free to be me but not free to be you a feminist partner in crime is near at hand in her popular conservative book freedom feminism Christina Hoff Summers does for conservatism and libertarianism what new feminism and the true woman movement, as discussed in Congress of Women, does for Catholic and Protestant curiarchal religion. Summers deploys freedom to drive a wedge into feminist political solidarity. In the struggle for equality and justice by claiming that egalitarian feminism has had its day. And it has made its important contributions, but it is now denying the freedom of women today. To quote the book, freedom feminists can be liberal, conservative, or libertarian, Summers says. They can differ over abortion, the wage gap, and the role of government in the lives of women. They can strike balances between balance and career, between family and career. What they, what they must share is respect for considered differences of opinion and choice, insistence that debate and scholarship be reasoned, commitment to improving the lives of women, this is still Summers, recognition that the sexes are equal but different, and devotion to enlightenment democratic principles. It's a, can you see the confusing mix of rhetoric that is so clear here? She adds that today's feminist movement is hostile is a hostile environment for faith based, family centered, conservative women. This is a theological discourse, not just a political discourse. And this is why books like Elizabeth's are so crucial for us to be able to read the signs of the times. And not only the signs of the times, not only the language of the times, but the physical places of the times. What is happening in place, not just in the discursive space right, in the physical spaces of our world today. This framework is so crucial for us to be able to read. This is deceptive talk she uses. She, in a sort of fundamental basis, um, sorry, lost my place, I'm preaching a little bit. <laughs> um, her deceptive talk, um, and which he uses uh, freedom as the fundamental basis of collaboration and working for progress are thoroughly neoliberal and based on the fundamental rights of differences of opinion and choice. If the very theories of government that undergird notions of citizenship and decision-making are dissolving in favor of individualist opinion and choice, What does it mean to struggle for women's full democratic citizenship and decision making? Where do we do that? Of course everywhere, but really I mean it, where do we do it? What kind of alternative political spaces should we be cultivating? And as an alternative to what? For example, maybe Congress of Women should be materialized by having women retake the Congress. (laughs) And I mean women with a slash, right, which is a much bigger political project. Takes a lot more investment and a lot more movement behind it. Perhaps an answer and a challenge to these kinds of, uh, of questions come in Elizabeth's discussion of earlier feminist local spaces, of theological and political conscientization, Apart from church curiarchies and the disciplining practices of the academy. This question is actually very acute for me today from from the perspective of the declining role of theological education as an institution for shaping church and society. Drew has a robust, if also somewhat recent, history of educating theologians, church leaders, and scholars of religion within a deeply liberationist and ecofeminist feminist epistemological and political framework. We find ourselves in the business, and I do mean business, however, of surviving as an institution so that we can continue, as in our mission, to empower courageous leaders for the transformation of the world or, as Elizabeth said, to continue to cultivate possibilities for a radical democratic society and religion. But I have to say that the headwind of the unbridled free market in higher education and theological education from where I sit is very strong. Although I have been using the concept of struggle for most of my scholarly career, it has taken on a new affective power for me of late, as I contemplate the possibility that whatever spaces of possibility are being made anew in this landscape, and they must be made, they are not spaces where I live and work. This draws my attention to both the dinner church that reestablishes local theologizing and community in new patterns, and the way that the Moral Monday folks in North Carolina started holding church in the Statehouse singing hymns and preaching democracy. When you look around the landscape in the world today, where are the schools of democracy? Not where are the schools. Where are the schools of democracy in the world today? I also am encouraged by the resurgence of citizens in local town meetings and council halls, insisting on the integrity of their democracy and their rights to be heard and well represented even as, again, the spectacle of their being silenced or uh, discouraged from acting up as citizens. This grassroots energy may materialize versions of the Congress of women that Elizabeth calls us to imagine and co-create. But as she also activates the cosmopolis of women, she reminds us that the horizon of the local or the small or the unconnected is not sufficient. So if we are seeing the reemergence of these small spaces of democracy, these small opportunities for engaging in and materializing the Congress of women, still we have to have the world on our minds at the same time. Do we do that? As the forces of global neoliberalism seek to sweep aside familiar structures of law, citizenship, democratics, decision making, it is again difficult to say where alternative planetary wide spaces of cultivating, theorizing, and practicing democratics might actually materialize. And those of us who were not born as cyborgs struggle sometimes to understand virtuality. Right? or the ephemer- ephemerality of those kinds of spaces that connect us right, on the military infrastructure that has now connected the world in corporate globalization. Flash mobs and swarms are different metaphors than congresses and policies. What does that mean? How do we think about the space of citizenship, the space of decision making? if we are not in the decision making spaces what does it look like and also if they're they're changing all the time what does it mean to change while moving <laughs> to change the world while moving so as has ever been the case in feminist politics, we shouldn't aspire, of course, to pure places. The space of hope is always a bit of a dismal space as well, right? That is, it's, it's nailing the flag to the, to, the, to the mast in a time of despair. And Elizabeth's work has always been profoundly hopeful, profoundly committed to that possibility of feminist work in the world. No more have I felt that more recently than in the publication of this little book, which is the first in our series, I'll hold up the advertisement, of feminist, um, the FSR book series. But I want to mention as part of this, uh, and in closing as part of the publication of this book, is in the process of finding a feminist space in which we could in some ways step out of the constraints of not having editorial control over what would be published. We wanted to have a a space of our own editorially. And also to step out of the constraints of pricing that make it inaccessible, make books inaccessible to the larger um, populations beyond the academy or beyond um, folks who have devices, right? One thing we discovered is that access is actually easier with a book because you don't have to have technology to have it. You do have to get past the price, but then if someone gives it to you, right? you don't have to have technology. You can give it away <laughs> if it's a book. But if it's a PDF or an e-file, that's harder. right? So what we discovered in this whole process, however, also with trying to step into new ways of creating access to spreading feminist knowledge and creating feminist knowledge is that, again, we were, in some ways, newly captive to our labor being undervalued and to having to find support constantly to work to self-publish right? because of the way the structures of publishing. That is, we are always constantly wanting to work outside the systems while always working within the systems. Even if we imagine ourselves, alternatively, we're still working within. And therefore we have a constant state of constraint as well as possibility. So that's why this book for me is a hope and a challenge. It dares us in a lot of ways to hope and to keep hoping in very concrete material ways. To keep working for the materialization of the Congress of Women in all kinds of spaces and places. And it has done that for me as Elizabeth's work has done for me again and again. And so in that sense, I want to end with a concept of utopia, which is um, very much uh, related to the concept of hope, with a poem that really gives you the feeling of why this matters. It's a poem by Eduardo Galeano. Utopia is on the horizon. When I walk two steps, it takes two steps back. When I walk ten steps, it is ten steps farther away. What is utopia for, let me reframe that. What is hope for, what is the ecclesia of women for, what is the dream of the vasilia of God for, I'm paraphrasing the poem. What is utopia for, it is for this, just to get us walking together, thanks.
0: Well, thanks very much to our three discussants for raising so many excellent points. So the floor is open, and you can take your own questions, and um, anyone can jump in. I think usually that works pretty well. Who would like to open things up?
1: I uh, I want to thank everybody for your um, contributions and uh, for your the issues you highlighted, and I think. Uh, let's try to move into them. Um, to start uh, with um, with Kelby, mm-hmm. how would you see the future of feminist work? After he, listening to Melanie.
2: <laughs> 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 Nancy. Can I put that question out? Because <laughs> I feel like. You can <laughs> <no. laughs> <No. laughs> Yeah, I'd be interested to in hear what y'all think, because I think I hopefully offered a kind of sense of that in my remarks. But if you all want to say something, you give me a minute to think about this incredibly difficult question. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs>
1: Um, If you need some time to think about it, (laughs) let me ask a question for Nancy. Um, Nancy, um, if we are in a global situation where borders are no longer borders, how can we then the imagination of the borderlands Rescue for those who haven't lived in the borderlands, or in other words, um, if um, if the situation in the states becomes every day more and more like that in Mexico, uh, the borderland is no longer border, because uh, the the political and uh, the economic and all situations become in terms of neoliberalism global. So how can one uh, work with the imagination of the borderlands, which uh, we have such a rich literature, if the borders are no longer borders.
3: That's a great question. I, I think one of the challenges we find, you know, borders are both places where you see a clash and there is uh, the devolution and, the, and all kinds of evil practices that emerge along the border. Um, and there are also places where there's a breaking in uh, and you start to see uh, organizing across borders that uh, is hopeful and grace-filled. So I think I think there are places where you see the clash of both of those realities going on. Um, and uh, what what I think is happening in our world more and more the the, the disintegration that you're talking about. I think it's a disintegration with regard to economics, but I think there is a militarization and a violence and a rigidity around the border with regard to the movement of peoples mm-hmm. and so there's that 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 has to do a lot with the evil that is escalating along the border um, uh, but I also see the, the only hope is the transnational, which is one of the reasons I'm so excited about your work. Because we need a whole different frame of thinking. And we have to think outside of our just our national boundaries. And so while not all of us necessarily have the experience of the border or haven't necessarily lived on the border, we've got to push ourselves to be thinking on a whole different scale. Mm-hmm. And that's where I find uh, a grace that the transnational in what you've done is it is put on is put on the map much more strongly um, through your work and the work of many others. I think too that we're we're moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that. <laughs> I mean, those are some initial thoughts to what you're raising.
2: are you ready? Well, I guess what comes to mind immediately is thinking a little bit about what Melanie was saying about sort of my generation of human cyborgs and the kind of femoral spaces for collective organizing on things like Facebook and Twitter Um, and I think we're seeing pretty clearly the dark side of the Twitterverse at present but I think that one way that we might imagine the sort of feminism of the future is to take charge of those virtual spaces I guess in some ways like what we're doing with the Feminist Studies and Religion Forum as kind of creating spaces for feminist transnational networking um, that are alternatives, but also kind of interwoven with these sort of larger social networks.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not the only one who asks questions. Melanie gets off the hook. Joined a good <laughs> <laughs> Um I. Um, I mean, I I agree with um, Melanie um, says, but uh, you still have left me with um, the question, uh, should I drop Congress of Women? Because Congress, as we experience it, um, it no longer is working or is, uh, is communicating something it's just the opposite of what I'm trying to intend. But I, um, I mean, in Congress, became I, I, I was chosen because I have year for years used ecclesia. But then I have been told again and again, and rightfully so, that ecclesia is not just a Greek term, but it's a, it's a very uh, religious, uh, uh, Christian, uh, Catholic term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for another um, image, uh, name, and so in Poland there was two or three years ago or four years ago, um, uh, they started uh, the uh, Congress of Women, yeah. where uh, and they have it had it every year, mm-hmm. and uh, so where uh, women from all different. Um, Professions, different jobs, different uh, areas came together in a con, at a congress, and so that's really what gave me the idea as yeah. thinking that would maybe uh, uh, a potent notion to develop. Yeah, and I actually w- would.
4: I mean, what was so interesting for me reading it this time around was that. Uh, the The concept of the utopian requires that paradoxical that is that it is both you know the place and not the place, so it has to retain the utopian has to retain a connection to the world as it is and so then I was puzzling about the fact that Congress was so <laughs> not congressional <laughs> um, that that what does that do to the utopian imaginary but actually i th- I think where Where I landed is exactly what you talk about in terms of the, of even religious congresses, even ecclesia as the space of democratics, right? Almost like the schools for democracy Mm -hmm. means that then the renovation of Congress, the space itself, right, can happen up out of these new practices. Mm -hmm. But that, but then Congress and women is not uh, really—it's actually a physical alternative Mm -hmm. space, not just a a utopian, you know, imaginary alternative space. It's actually a get-together-for-democracy-school kind of space. And I think that's its utopian energy, for me, mm. in the current landscape, if that makes sense.
3: And you merged them, Elizabeth, like in chapter three, that you bring these two together. They're always uh, talked about in relationship with one another and as distinct. But then in that third chapter, you often write them into a single, uh, as a single idea, mm-hmm. which I think is a, uh, interesting, and it pushes our thinking in ways. And I think even with the of course, you've always held together the utopian and the material. I mean, they're both running constantly mm-hmm. through the, your work over the whole course of your uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of the, all the books you've published. And I think I'm curious now as you. Um, as you think about this book, are you would you title it differently today if you were writing it now than you did? I, I mean, I'm not, and I'm not suggesting no. that that's what should no, happen. I I'm just asking the question because you're because you're drawing that drawing that out. So I'm curious about your own thinking on that.
1: I mean, I'm. Um i curious what's the response, whether or not I get across what I want, what th- I didn't get across this Ecclesia of Women, mm-hmm. namely the political, and the book is about the, po- getting about the political frame. That's right. And um, I hope I will get it across, I mean, I, it would be interesting to have a congresswoman mm-hmm. <laughs> here to disc- uh, discuss and talk it how uh, they uh, would mm-hmm. see religious spaces, mm-hmm. all that. Mm-hmm. I was also struck by
4: how many times I thought about the 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 referent, when I, again, in the current landscape of theological education and fem, um, feminist publishing and poly, uh, Congress, <laughs> if I say, you know, cis- citizen of what, right, uh, citizenship of what, our decision-making where, like I think that I was really struck just by how much I wasn't sure anymore how much, what those were, what those reference were that were unspoken, which I think really speaks to the moment, which is that there's all kinds of new spaces being made. Mm -hmm. That's the hopeful side of this, right, is that there's all kinds of opportunities for solidarities and, and production of new knowledges and spaces for new actions. But I think we have to prime our eyes to begin looking for them, other than the places we're used to, because
1: of this. But uh, since we are here at um, Harvard, how how are we uh, not just in feminist terms, but how in terms of um, pedagogy, mm. how is one is that possible to work with? Because um, all of you will work uh, with uh, people or special places and so on. So the question is, how does one translate it uh, in terms of if people come to uh, universities or schools of uh, religion, uh, are we socializing people? into such an approach, or are we really socializing people into the neoliberal approach mm. that only um, what you earn, whether or not it's, right. it's intellectual or real or whatever, only that counts. Yeah. So are there any what questions, observations? Oh, well,
5: what what about some existing organizations, for instance, Code Pink, or things that individual women, regardless of their perspective, can focus a little on a particular issue instead of whole world and human rights and every everything that things can become very diverse but I mean I only give that as an example I think when you spoke of the, the pink crosses I was thinking of the pink hats and, mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. and the whole um, movement choice thing and of course there are many things within different issues that have either women's groups or groups working on on looking at the framework of a larger framework but on specific things whether it's Palestine or vegetarianism or you know many of the issues that that uh, there, I mean, it's, it's something that does exist and maybe is not reaching you know, like the you might be talking about. But um, I think of those in census com- small congresses mm. <laughs> of people. Yeah. Sometimes mm-hmm. they overlap. So, Melanie,
3: mm-hmm. you raised the issue. Of particularly in relationship to publishing explicitly, but I think yeah. implicitly is at the heart of a lot of this discussion of the tension between creating alternative spaces and practices and working within the constraints of the particular systems. Yeah. And I mean, clearly
0: you are publishing. I mean, you're not, you have That's created great. some entirely alternative mode and yet have hope for a different way of being. So is it, can
3: anyone, um, how do you reflect on you know, best practices or ways of thinking about the tension between working within a system
1: and constraints and also trying to imagine and push beyond it? Mm-hmm. I,
4: mean, I think that the spatial, uh, the, what I have always liked about Elizabeth's work is that the imaginary space doesn't require somehow getting outside or apart from in order to be contra (laughs) an alternative, right? It's about cultivating our it's about cultivating the alternatives in the spaces where we are Mm -hmm. by being able to imagine alternatives and we can often only do that when we have these kind of unusual practices Mm -hmm. right? or small practices and we connect them up and say see what this did or didn't do. It's the critical analysis Mm -hmm. as well I think, the critical praxis. So I think to, to, I'm trying to get away from saying alternative is outside. Mm-hmm. Alternative is getting your mind mm-hmm. and your practice outside of,
3: but while within. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah,
2: that's kind of outside
3: of oh. you. Well, I was just gonna say, see, I think that there's where the whole question of boundaries and borders comes into play. Because when we're up against difference in the ways that we might organize, and we're not inside of whatever in our world is normative, but we're on the fringe of that, I think that's where all kinds of creative ideas erupt. And they don't really erupt right in the (laughs) center. I don't think, at least. At least that's not my experience. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I just, as you said that I thought, you know, it's like a question of how do we, how do we move to places and spaces that take us uh, to the boundaries of our our imagination. Mm -hmm. But anyway I,
1: I, I but <laughs> I always always think we shouldn't uh, concede too easily as a centre. Because <laughs> okay. Because Because... Uh, women's places in the
4: House and Senate.
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I had to do no. <laughs>
3: not to vacate it but I think in a lot of ways well like I teach in a Catholic institution you know there's a lot of uh, with a lot of women who are very frustrated understandably so with the reality of the Catholic church and its practices and uh, we're, we're in the middle here but we also are trying to begin to think in, le- in areas that are at the edge but I, I think that's probably where I'm coming from. If I just stay with what's considered normative, I feel like I'll shrivel up and die. Mm. Mm. I mean, over time that will happen. So that's where I, but I, but I, but I agree, I mean, I, I think it's important to work in so One of The things I thought were very interesting about your book that we, that you made such a strong point about feminist studies in religion not of religion and so and you underscored that repeatedly in religion and (coughs) and what does it mean to be inside and i think that's very important you know because that the sheer our sheer presence in certain places over time i think also transforms the spaces that we occupy
1: you see that. Um, but I meant, I wouldn't concede the center. Okay, because and I, yeah, okay. I, we are living here in the center of uh, the study of religion, <laughs> and my point is, it's the study in religion that is important. Mm-hmm.
3: Yes, but the qu- but the also the part I think where I would push back is,
1: how do I stay alive inside of that?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: By as uh, as Melanie said, uh, not uh, by um, by being um, off the place, but bec- by creating uh, different worlds in the place. Mm-hmm. That's
2: why I was going to say that I. I'm hesitant to get to change that language of Congress of Women because I kind of like that it's set up against the sort of absurd circus of the current (laughs) Congress that says, "Okay, well, if you're going to screw this up, we're going to do it differently. We're probably going to do it better." And I think that that's, in some ways, what's happening with the book series too is that you know I think responding to the constraints of academic publishing, you say, "Okay, we're going to do this," and we're you know, you know, then going to struggle with all the things that that means for labor. But that, yeah, we're creating. Uh sort of, I don't know, parasystem that's really exciting. Right.
4: But the, and that, this is about your, the book being, where you started. The book is written in Carriarchal, you know, America. That, that <laughs> list of words you have <laughs> <laughs> for this world we live in today, here right now. Um, that, you know, it's what I was trying to say about the book series is that the opening that we have, the opportunity that we have to be more free mm-hmm. with regard to academic publishing is created by the neoliberal market infor- forces on the book industry you know and we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't not notice the mechanisms mm-hmm. that doesn't mean they dilute or pollute the possibilities mm-hmm. but we should not notice we shouldn't not notice that mm-hmm. right that that academic publishing itself is being disrupted mm-hmm. and disbordered
1: disintegrated mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. uh, By neoliberalism. And not only uh, that, but uh, neoliberalism. I mean, um, I uh, was in a debate a year ago or so with some publisher of a textbook, and uh, they wanted me to sign uh, that I uh, refrain from all Mm self-plagiarizing. And I didn't know <laughs> what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked at Today my German self, dictionary yeah, it and they self. didn't have the word in German. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't know what it meant. But um, what it really means is that uh, women um, could not have intellectual, quotation mark, property uh, because they weren't printed and they weren't, so and so on, and so on. Now that is no longer the case, but we still can't have our own or own our own intellectual thought because uh, supposedly whenever I sign a contract with a publisher, I'm giving away the knowledge that I have. Mm-hmm. And I'm supposed not to self plagiarize <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> me, um, it's, which is,
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one, oh. one last question, and then uh, we'll probably have to call the formal discussion to an end. Of course, everyone's welcome to stay on. But
6: okay, I just want to share what I heard from the Korean College of Women and Korea, Korean Presbyterian Churches mm-hmm. regarding the question why LGBT works matters. Mm-hmm. Now, in this contemporary liberal society, actually, as you might um, know, the Korean the whole peninsula are facing the urgent need of transforming the entire society. Recently, which has been very, under neoliberal power uh, uh, as represented in the close relationship of uh, uh, neoliberal power, including Samsung, Mm -hmm. and the corrupt authoritarian feudal government, and the military power, and mass media, and and supported by very patriotic, conservative Korean Christianity, mm-hmm. so they are working together to sustain their the status quo they have enjoyed in the last like 20 more than 20 years. And the Korean clergy women are wor- were working together last s- summer to find the resources to help them uh, find a uh, uh, help them resource to help. The women who has been the or s- social group who has been suffering under that system, and then they were reading Elizabeth's work <laughs> yeah, in their right, training program. Right. So
5: mm-hmm.
6: right. I really want to say thank you to mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. instead of Korean college women. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to find a new framework to change the whole society, and the patriarchal, church system, and people who are suffering, seriously. So I just want to thank you for work and this new book. Thank you.